months go. Uh, but here we are in autumn and uh, it's been very grey around here lately and uh, um, I'm getting in that fall pumpkin spice hunker down getting ready to hibernate kind of mood. I don't know about you but uh, I, I'm not hibernating yet though because uh, I am really excited uh, to share with you um, the work that I'm going to be sharing today. I'm uh, lucky enough to know this person in real life and uh, she is pretty fabulous. So uh, I am going to be sharing work by Micaela Arenas and Micaela Arenas is a 15-year-old writer and a citizen of Manchester, Connecticut. She is a proud daughter of immigrants and an activist seeking to initiate equitable change in her community. A strong belief in the power of words and stories is what made her pick up a pen in the first place, guiding her towards a life between the lines of a page. And I I hope you will enjoy and be inspired by her beautiful work. So let's uh, get right into it. This first piece is a poem. Borders. There were so many borders I had to cross, with hands tied and a dirty rag tied over my mouth leaving me gasping for air. None of them were easy, all of them impossible, at least that's what they said. But I had no choice. People who make things possible never do. My life was broken pottery, and I had to put the pieces back together, letting the sharp edges cut my hands as tears flowed, blood and tears mix in a pink shade of my struggle. The first is easy for all to visualize, the border of bricks and metal gates, airport patrols' watchful eyes, people hunting people, the heat and the weight of everything you could carry from home on your back. Air becomes dust that floods my lungs, making it hard to breathe. Thoughts and emotions are one and the same, and oh, the wishing, the hopeful memories of family and friends, of familiar tastes and smells, of welcoming smiles and open arms, a soft place to land for the first time in months, surrounded by those you love who love you back, and at the same time, those you had to leave behind. The second border makes my tongue twist, strange tones and sounds that scramble to have meaning in my brain. Everyone speaks it. Their words like string, nodding into messy clumps I try to untangle, and nobody understands. No one can hear me. It's like I have no voice at all. Like I'm a shadow instead of flesh and blood. Another person with scarred, calloused hands and a heavy conscience. I carry the weight of many more than myself. Sometimes that's safer. The third boarder tried to steal pieces of my pottery and redesign them, covering my colors with a coat of white paint telling me who and when and how, but never saying why. Just that me, as I am, will never rise up and succeed. I feel like a puppet master, dancing a marionette through fire, while I feel my own spark dim. The fourth border is the hole found in my armor, the leftover sound of home clinging heavily onto the stringy new language, the color of my hair and eyes, the skin that kept me warm like a coat throughout my journey, all an obstacle. Being stripped of everything that is me because I need to survive. There are so many borders I had to cross and will keep crossing, 
even though all I want to do is knock them down, even if my hands bleed or my heart shatters. The journey left me scarred and tired, but I will keep going, and I will add my pieces to the mosaic of this foreign land. Forged by the hands of generations of my people, we keep fighting for our freedom. We live and die and work and rot for the land of new beginnings and their children that follow. We all came from somewhere else, but our hearts are like a compass, all of them pointing to our home of the brave. This next one is a speech that Miquela gave at an event honoring the families at the border a few years ago. Circle. When I was in fourth grade, a storyteller came to my school as a special guest, so the teachers led us all in lines towards the gym where we sat facing the stage. A man holding a guitar smiled back at us from a stool, and my classmates and I chattered in anticipation. Finally, the assembly began, and we all settled in for what was likely to be someone reading to us from a book for an hour. Now, back then, from what I remember, stories were just short pieces of text we listened to for a little while before we got back to talking and playing. They didn't really mean much besides entertainment. But this storyteller completely changed that for me when he told us this story. Once, there were two best friends who had known each other for so long they couldn't remember a time before they were together. The friends were so close that when they grew, the two of them built houses next to each other so they could be neighbors. Everything was going well, until one day the first friend happened upon a cow that he claimed immediately. He put it in his barn to harvest milk the next day, but when he woke, the cow had disappeared. In a fit of rage, he ran over to his friend's house and accused him of stealing the cow. A nasty fight broke out, and later one of them called a carpenter to build a fence between their two houses. He left the carpenter to his work and went to sleep, still fuming. The night passed, and when the first friend woke, he immediately went to check the progress. But to his surprise, instead of a fence, there was a sturdy wooden bridge leading from one house to the other. When the man angrily questioned the carpenter, he replied, I built what you needed. Later that day, the friends got over their pride and met at the bridge to apologize for all the things they'd said to each other. In the conversation that followed, the first friend discovered that his neighbor had never even seen the missing cow in his life. For many years, the two remained close friends, and the carpenter continued to build what people needed. Then the storyteller said something that greatly impacted me. He said, because it is better to build bridges than walls. Fast forward a year later, 2016, and the news has become like background music in my house. I hear about the border wall and later about the dreadful conditions where immigrants and refugees are being kept, how children younger than me are being mistreated and ripped away from their parents who are deported for no reason, even if their country is at war or in a crisis. As a U.S. citizen and member of a diverse community, I am angry and devastated about what's happening, especially since those in power are doing nothing to stop it. Every time I see or hear about the people at the border being treated inhumanely and denied their rights, I wish I could put an end to it right away. But this is a fight, a change, that can only be won if we all stay united and talk about this issue instead of ignoring it. This is the time to break the cycle of ignorance, greed, and suffering. Because together we are strong enough and smart enough to knock down the walls around, not only the country, but people's minds as well. And we will build bridges. Thank you.
Mikaela has also written a book, The Imaginator, and I'm very lucky to be able to read from that now and uh, share uh, some chapters with you. The Imaginator, Chapter One The night was ink black, the stars and moon curtained in darkness. Footsteps cut through the eerie silence, boots slapping against the wet cobblestone at a brisk pace. Five figures dressed in black crept through the empty streets while twisting and turning in and out of alleyways. One boy who was younger than the others, no more than thirteen, trailed behind reluctantly, with his eyes darting all around like frightened prey. The boy's breath came out ragged as he jogged to keep up with the others. He caught up to the leader and snatched at his cloak. "'Father, why are we doing this?' The man shrugged him off and continued to silently navigate through the winding streets. A wolf howled in the distance, and the boy caught his breath, for once thankful of the wall surrounding his town. After a few more desperate attempts by the boy to catch his father's attention, the man finally spun around and acknowledged his son, his face hard and angry. The rest of the cloaked people halted as well. I've already told you that family is not normal, Cornelius. They poison this town with their idiotic stories. You're lucky I let you stay after what you did, he growled angrily, his silver eyes flashing. If you wish to stay behind and let this town become the same as the cursed land outside, then don't you dare call yourself my son. Cornelius flinched away and fell to the back of the group as they continued to run between buildings, under bridges, and through open plazas. He kept silent for the rest of the trip, trying to stand out as little as possible. After a while, they finally reached their destination, an old library at the edge of town surrounded by fruit trees and a small garden. The darkness seemed less suffocating here. In fact, it felt welcoming and mysterious, like the beginning of a story. Guilt and dread began to build up in Cornelius's stomach at the sight of it. They edged their way toward the garden where more cloaked figures stood with hatchets, pickaxes, and clubs in hand. When the others caught sight of the group, a man with obsidian eyes stepped forward to greet them. The man and Cornelius's father exchanged curt nods and began to speak in gruff voices. Make sure they don't escape. A scroll was passed between them. Yes, of course, we'll make them pay. They spoke solemnly, their voices filled with hate and misunderstanding. A hooded figure approached Cornelius and handed him a bronze pickaxe with a leather handle. The boy took the tool with shaking hands and held it flat in his palms. He flinched when he felt someone touch his shoulder and spun around, gripping the pickaxe. Relax, it's just me, you coward. A boy with features similar to Cornelius's lowered his hood and ruffled the other's hair. Cornelius gasped. Christ, Abaddon, you scared me. The weight on his chest had gotten a little lighter. Abaddon grinned and poked Cornelius in the ribs with his club. Well, come on then, cousin, we're starting. The hooded figures circled the library, stepping through the garden and smashing the vegetables that were just beginning to grow in the early spring soil. Abaddon grabbed a handful of Cornelius's cloak and pulled him over to the circle. Remember, this is your chance to redeem yourself after that stunt you pulled, so don't wimp out at the last second, he said, as they adjusted their hoods and lifted their weapons. Cornelius wrung his hands and sucked in a shuddering breath. He had to do this. There was no choice. The man who had spoken to his father raised his hand, and everyone braced themselves to strike the pillars of the library. Cornelius gripped the pickaxe and pressed his eyes closed, feeling the dread slowly tightening his throat. The darkness became heavy all around him, pulling at his hood, crawling up his back, whispering, Do it. Wait! A voice echoed through the humid night air. All the hooded figures froze and turned as a young girl in a yellow cloak ran up the cobblestone street, holding her arms aloft. This is not the way. We can talk this out peacefully. The windows of the library instantly lit up, and a baby wailed from the top floor. Valerie, 
Cornelius whispered to himself as she planted herself in the doorway of the library. His father stepped forward, fists clenched at his sides. Daughter, what in God's name do you think you're doing? Valerie put her hands on her hips and stood her ground. Something you're too scared to do. I'm trying to find a solution through peace instead of brute force. She responded in a voice so sharp it made her father twitch ever so slightly. You're delusional, Valerie. Go home, his father said, angrier than Cornelius had ever seen him. Valerie had not yet spotted him in the crowd, but Cornelius knew she was aware of his presence. A woman in a nightdress came up behind Valerie and put a hand on her shoulder. She's not delusional. She's the bravest girl I've ever met, and she has more sense than all of you combined, she said in a fierce voice. The woman held herself like a queen, chin up and back straight, a lot like Valerie often did. Her face was calm, but her eyes were full of worry and desperation. The wails of the baby got louder, and Cornelius bit his lip, telling himself to ignore the shame. Claremont Diaz, you have repeatedly refused to shut down your library. You must have expected something like this would happen, said the man in charge, his hand still raised to signal attack. This nonsense cannot take root in our town. It's either you or our children. The crowd murmured in agreement. Nevertheless, neither Valerie nor Claremont moved an inch. Cornelius stared at the onyx-eyed man, willing him to remember how Valerie was only fifteen, a child. Maybe if they realized the lack of reasoning behind the attack, everything would go back to how it was. I had hoped it wouldn't come to this, Claremont responded sadly. There is still time. Let us find peace. Our stories cannot hurt anyone. She put her hand on the pillar of the library, as if she could keep it standing forever all by herself. Cornelius caught his sister's eye and nearly tripped over his own feet. She reached out her arms toward him with a determined look. Cornelius, don't do this. Join us, she paused. Or go home. You needn't risk your life. Cornelius glanced all around, looking for a glimmer of hope, listening for the sound of ripping fabric, anything that he knew might save his elder sister. Where was she, the one who promised to keep Valerie safe? He knew the townspeople wouldn't yield to peace. They were prideful, close-minded, and they would never let the two women get away without punishment. Valerie, just let them through, Cornelius said slowly as if talking to a lion that was poised on its haunches. He avoided her eyes. The truth was that Valerie was as stubborn as a mule when it came to doing the right thing, even if it was something as simple as fairly scoring a game played out of boredom. Before Valerie could respond, her father spoke once more. This is your final chance. Step down, Valerie. His voice shook slightly when he said her name, but his eyes were cold and sharp. After all, he was threatening his only daughter. Cornelius clenched his fists and silently willed her to listen and go home. He tried to breathe normally, but the night air was cold and stung the inside of his throat. Cold sweat started to beat on his forehead. Valerie looked at him again with pleading eyes. Cornelius, please! He couldn't look away from his sister. Her hands were held before her, and she was leaning toward him ever so slightly. If he joined her, he would have to leave his father, leave everything he had ever known. Cornelius would no doubt be disowned, abandoned, a disgrace to his own people. Please. His father picked up his club, and the leader raised his hand once more. Everyone raised their weapons in response. Cornelius. Her voice cracked, and a single tear broke free. It ran down her cheek and fell to the marble ground. Abaddon put a hand on his shoulder. There's no choice. We have to do this or they'll kill us. Abaddon's voice was on the edge of devastation. He had always been very close to his cousins, and seeing the girl he had laughed and played with for years, now standing on her grave, was tearing him apart. But Abaddon was right. Cornelius had never even learned how to fight for himself. He could never survive on his own, even if he was with Valerie. Ready yourselves! the leader shouted, and everyone prepared to strike the pillars. Claremont backed up and looked at Valerie in fear. 
Please, brother. She sounded so sure that he would do the right thing. But even so, there was a quaver in her voice. As Cornelius looked away, the hand finally fell, and the chaos began. Townspeople rushed from the crowd and slammed their weapons against the beautiful library. The sound of angry yells and crumbling stone roared in his ears. Suddenly, someone pushed him forward, and he heard his father's voice. "'What are you waiting for?' Cornelius scolded himself and tried to forget the fact that his sister still stood in the doorway. The world became a blur as he ran toward the library and struck it furiously with his pickaxe. The blood pulsed so loud in his ears that he hardly noticed as the lights of nearby houses flickered on and people started to trickle out. He struck here and there as hard as he could until he heard a loud snap. Cornelius glanced up at the huge crack in the pillar, and oddly, memories began to flash before his eyes. His sister teaching him how to read and write instead of working on the farm. Valerie and Abaddon putting on a play based off an old book they had found. Cornelius falling asleep to a story his sister had written just for him. Plentiful memories. Suddenly, cheers began to resonate throughout the crowd, and he was thrust back into reality. The pillar was falling, and had begun to dig itself into the roof of the library. The stone fell like leaves in autumn as the doorway crumbled, and Cornelius saw what remained under it. Valerie and Claremont still stood there with linked arms, proud as trees. They were obviously terrified, and yet they refused to scream. They were much too stubborn to give in. Seconds before the doorway finally fell, Cornelius caught his sister's eye. Time seemed to stop. Her face was flooded with betrayal and raw disappointment that seemed to cut Cornelius's heart open and leave it to bleed out shame. Valerie's eyes never left his, even as the library cracked and broke around her, even when the roof caved in and dust clouds billowed over the crowd. As the dust settled, the world became eerily silent, a few seconds passed, and the whispers of the townspeople began to flood the air. Cornelius suddenly heard a familiar sound break through the shock, and he could hardly believe it. The only thing left was the crumbled remains of the library, and a sight that made Cornelius cry out in despair. Where his sister had stood was a single blood-red flower atop the cracked stone that was once a doorway. But Valerie herself was nowhere to be seen. Chapter 2 Anything can happen in a library. Well, perhaps the more appropriate thing to say is that anything can happen when you're surrounded by stories. They can teach you about everything you need to know, even if they're not realistic, at least not to you. By allowing yourself to live in a story for even the shortest time, you erase the limitations created by your existence. Willow Vindul was one of the few people in the universe who truly understood this, because books had been her only form of education, entertainment, and companionship for the last seven years. So as the sun streamed in through the cracks in the wall, Willow opened a book and began to take in another story. She had spent the morning doing her usual routine. Wake up before the sun rises, clean father's desk, tidy the window seat, gather water from the nearby lake, and cook the week's food before people woke up and saw the fire. This all had to be done in the early morning so as to not waste daylight or be discovered by the townspeople. But when the light came, Willow would quickly tend to the overgrown garden, scavenge for more books between the rubble, check the books for decay, and repair any damage before settling into a nice day of reading. Every now and then, Willow would find a new book that would make her want to risk building a fire just so she could read past the daylight. But after the incident that caused the collapse of the library, her father had made it clear that nighttime was not to be trusted. Though Willow had been five when Alvis Vine Duel died, she still followed his rules strictly out of habit. 
She remembered how terrified he would seem when she would come close to breaking one. No, Willow, he would sign with his hands. What have I told you again and again? Willow would look up into his concerned navy blue eyes and reply, signing as well. Never make too much noise. Never build a fire before early morning. Never let yourself be seen. And never leave the library. That's right, her father would sign before kissing her on the forehead. I can't lose you, too. Willow missed her father dearly. He had been the only one she had to talk to in the abandoned library, and the books were the only things keeping her sane in a world of silence. However, being born deaf had never really bothered her. If you live alone in the ruins of a library, you don't really have to talk or listen to anybody, especially when you're trying to stay hidden from the entire town. Her father had taught her sign language only so they could speak to each other, but that wasn't of much use now. He had gone out one day and never returned. Willow had assumed he was dead since he hadn't been acting unusual. That and the fact that it had been seven years. Willow often felt lonely and imagined what it would be like if she was a hero like the characters in her books. Maybe she could have special powers. Or maybe she had an incredible skill she just hadn't discovered yet. The prospect of being someone special burned like a campfire in the back of her mind, warm and welcoming. Whenever she read a particularly exciting part of a book, she would close her eyes and let her imagination wash over the silence. Willow fighting a dragon. Willow sword fighting a villain. Willow discovering a lost temple. When she shut her eyes... She could do and be anything she wanted. Her heart would soar, a smile would find itself on her face, and goosebumps would prickle her entire body. But then her eyes would open, and Willow would be right back where she started. She remembered that she was alone, powerless, with no future of doing anything exciting or hero-worthy. No, she would stay in the library until she was found or until she died. These were grim thoughts, but it was all Willow could think about. Nobody would ever know her name. Nobody would ever know the story of the deaf girl in the abandoned library who longed for something more than just trying to stay alive. Her very existence wouldn't even have the chance to be forgotten because there wasn't a single person in the whole world who knew she was alive. But still, even if those thoughts often plagued her, Willow would open a book and she was okay again. When she sat down to read, anything seemed possible. The birds were singing outside the library, and the sun was working very hard that day, warming the cracked stone so that it heated up like an oven. Willow enjoyed the warmth after a long and ice-cold winter, but felt like roast beef in the abrupt heat of spring. The night had been unexpectedly warm as well, despite the lack of sun, so Willow had thought ahead and gotten extra water, in case she wanted to douse herself at some point in the day. What she hadn't expected was that she was going to need a lot more than that. By the time Willow finished tending to the garden that threatened to wilt, she was drenched with sweat and had a splitting headache. She moaned and fell face-first onto her window seat. Throughout the night, she had unconsciously stripped off all her covers and pillows, throwing them on the floor and sleeping on the bare, faded cushion instead of her usual heap of blankets. Willow stayed there for a while, breathing in the musty smell of the cushion with her eyes shut tight. When the headache finally faded, she begrudgingly got up to continue her chores, almost tripping over the maze of bedding scattered on the carpet. In short, Willow was not having a great day. The frustrated girl tied up her inky black hair with a strip of old fabric, grabbed a coil of strong rope, and pulled on her father's old work gloves, newly sewn to fit her hands. The gloves were dirty and worn from years of pulling thick rope and lifting stone pieces in hope of finding new books for their owner. Willow walked to the front side of the library and grabbed her black coat on the way. If someone passed by the library, she could easily melt into the shadows cast by the collapsed walls before anyone saw she was there. Not that anyone ever ventured to that side of town, of course, but you could never be too careful. The history of this particular set of people was enough to warrant caution. The standing piece of the library was no better than the collapsed part, in Willow's opinion. Giant cracks covered all the stone walls, 
water got in through the ceiling, and the floors were covered in moss and dust from years of sitting uncleaned. The checkout desks scared Willow. The fact that they were empty seemed wrong somehow, like a graveyard filled with old headstones left to rot by the gravediggers. Whenever she looked at them, she felt a clench in her stomach and dim memories struggling to emerge. Tapestries and paintings that had once decorated the library lay torn and faded on the floor or dangling from the walls. There were shelves filled with all kinds of books and stories, filled with Willow's best friends. The shade washed over Willow when she reached the rubble, and she sighed in contentment at the cool stone around her. She began to search for a place she hadn't checked before, lifting large chunks of library and hunting for books underneath the stone. There were indents all over them that Willow never noticed before. This must be the doorway, she thought. The indents could have been pickaxe marks from that night long ago. Having only started the process of looking for books a few weeks ago, when she turned twelve like her father intended, Willow had barely scratched the surface of what was hidden under all the rubble. Pausing in her work, Willow remembered what her father had said about the day the library fell. It was nighttime when it happened. The crowd circled us and left us nowhere to run, he would sign with a sad look on his face. Your mother told me to go with you at the back door while she distracted the attackers. His face would become desperate and full of regret. I didn't want to leave her, but I had no choice. You had to live. Both of us knew that. Her father took in a ragged breath. She died at the doorway, standing tall and brave with that Valerie, the one who came every day just to read in that very window seat. He pointed to the one she slept on with all the blankets forming a nest. Her brother used to come as well, but something happened and he ended up joining the crowd, holding a pickaxe. Willow would then tip her head slightly and look at her father questioningly, observing the bitter look on his face. Do you hate him for that? she would sign. And her father would smile knowingly, as if he were recalling an inside joke. No, Willow, he was just a scared little boy. In fact, I believe he's the only person in the entire world who would understand how I felt when Clary died. At the sound of his wife's name, his expression would become guarded and distant. That's when Willow knew that no more questions could be asked. Vibrations of heavy feet on cobblestone roads snapped Willow back into the present. She opened her eyes, and sure enough, she saw two men with briefcases walking toward her home. One of the men wore a pinstripe suit and a fedora. He had a sour look on his face that suggested he had a horribly boring job and barely any hair on his head. The hair he actually had hung limp and gray on his scalp, like the wilting plants in Willow's garden. He was short and wide and looked very, very old. The other younger man was fairly handsome, with dark brown hair and silver eyes. He was tall and stood stiffly like a scarecrow tied to a post. His expressions were sharp and pinched, as if he was smelling something foul that needed to be exterminated. It did not help that he was staring at the other man with this face. Despite his expression at the time, there were lines at the edge of his mouth that suggested he smiled a lot or used to, anyway. He wore what looked to be a very expensive suit, ugly and gray, but made out of the finest wool in town. It must have itched in the stifling heat, which was probably the reason behind the man's sharp and annoyed expression, or at least one of the reasons. A black tie dangled from his neck and swayed as the man walked, counting his steps like a rhythm, and probably irritating him even more. Willow was barely breathing as she hid beneath a slab of wall, observing the two men with both interest and fear. She hoped desperately that they were just passing by and wouldn't notice her. What if they saw her? What if they took her away from her safe home? What if they killed her, too? Sweat trickled down her back and Willow shivered. She didn't know if it was from the sticky heat or the anxiety her overactive imagination was forcing upon her. Either way, Willow wished it would stop. It was very hard to focus when sweat glazed her arms and her throat closed up. By the looks on their faces, they were talking serious business. Both men were agitated, and the younger one was clearly seconds away from choking the other man with his rhythmic tie. As they got closer, Willow noticed two badges of identification on their lapels. The man with the scratchy gray suit wore a label that read, Abaddon Lewis, Assistant Mayor, 28 years old. 
On the badge was an old photo that showed a younger, lankier version of himself, his eyebrow raised and the flash of the camera making him squinty. The old man's badge read, Elliot George, real estate agent, 74 years old. His photo was recent, and he had the same sour look on his face, twisted and annoyed at the unfortunate soul behind the camera. Below both the names was a logo depicting a wall and a line of people holding hands. Next to it were the words, Citizens of Green Oak, a town of tradition. Green Oak was the name of the town her library was in. It had been founded around 500 years before Willow was born, and was home to the most strictly traditional people in the world, people who would kill to stay in the past. Willow knew this from a book she had found recently when she was digging through the rubble. Funnily enough, this book referred to Green Oak as the perfect town, but she knew it was far from perfect. Any town that murdered its own citizens simply for being different was nowhere near perfect not to mention the huge wall that surrounded Green Oak to keep out unwanted customs and people. Willow often wondered why her parents had chosen to settle in this town when the world outside the wall was so big and mysterious. She asked her father once, signing cautiously in case it was a touchy subject, why did you choose to live here instead of somewhere you and Mom could have been happy? His expression was odd, like he was looking back at a good memory that he now found bittersweet. It wasn't our job to be happy, her father had responded coldly, and it became just another conversation she was meant to avoid. The two men finally reached the old library, and to Willow's surprise, they began to inspect the remains. Abaddon was insanely clumsy and tripped all over the pieces of rock on the floor, while Elliot followed from behind, glancing around fearfully. Willow pressed herself into her hiding spot, and put a hand over her mouth and nose so that the lingering dust didn't make her sneeze. That would be the perfect horror story moment, and from all the books Willow had read, she knew not to make the same mistakes. Abaddon began to say something to the old man, pointing at the part of the library that was still intact. And then he did something that made Willow's heart skip a beat. He made a swinging motion with his hand, like bringing down a hammer to crush something. What did he mean by that? What were they talking about? Willow had never been so bothered by the fact she couldn't hear. She almost sighed in frustration before remembering that she had to stay quiet. Willow peeked her head out a bit and saw Elliot walking in her direction. She tensed up and quickly hid once more. Thoughts and questions raced through her brain in a panic before realization struck her like a cold wind. Elliot was, according to his badge, a real estate agent. This meant that he worked with selling and buying houses and land. Were they planning to demolish and sell the library? If so, who would buy it and why? Willow couldn't bear the thought of that happening and tried to shake off her worry. She had to focus on the situation at hand and try to find a solution. The characters in her books always ended up in trouble because they didn't think through their panic. Her eyes darted around the room, looking for something, anything that might help. Willow's breath became shallow as the fear threatened to rise again. She couldn't think. How could she when she was living through her worst nightmare? Willow took a small step backward and felt the blood drain from her face as she accidentally knocked over a stack of books. Time seemed to slow as the books hit the ground, and Willow dashed behind the nearest bookshelf before anyone could see her. She cringed when she felt how strong the vibrations were. The two men obviously heard it, she thought to herself, and would probably come to see what had caused the books to fall over. This made her job of staying invisible significantly harder, and Willow could already feel the sweat dripping down her neck as she braced herself for discovery. Then, in a small twist of fate, her eyes darted down toward the books at her feet, and she spotted a title that sparked an idea. Slowly and with shaky hands, Willow lifted the book that had made a plot start forming rapidly in her mind. The book was called Chilling Ghost Stories. Yes, Willow had been told to stay out of sight, but that didn't necessarily mean she couldn't make any noise and scare two people out of their wits. A grin crept onto her face and she let a giggle escape her. All her panic was gone and was instead replaced by childlike mischief. She traced the word ghost on the book and glanced at the maze of bookshelves around her. A ghost. That's what she would become. Willow Vinedool would become a ghost, 
and this time it wouldn't be all in her head. going to jump ahead now and read uh, from later in the book a portion of chapter five. Willow nearly gave herself whiplash when she twirled around to face the sound. It was unbelievably strange. Instead of feeling like it came through her ears, it seemed to resonate from every part of her body. Her eyes were wide and she was shivering, clutching her arms at the strange sensation. To Willow, it was the scariest thing about her situation. On her window seat sat the woman from her daydream, exactly as she'd seen her. The woman's white hair was swept to one side, and her eyes were a bright emerald green instead of the bottomless white from before. Her sword was nowhere to be seen, but the small bottles were still at her waist. She had an expression that was hard to read, but her smile was warm and kind, even if her eyes were clouded with loss. Hello, Willow Vinedool, the woman said, making Willow jump. She slapped her hands over her ears in an attempt to gain back the familiar silence. The woman's voice was smooth and clear. The hint of an accent clung to her words. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to startle you. Willow fumbled with her fingers to try and find the right words. Who are you, she signed, never taking her eyes off the woman in front of her. For all she knew, her sword could appear out of nowhere. I believe you already know my name, Flerka Bladius Ellington, remember? The woman replied, then paused as if deciding something. But that's quite a mouthful. Just call me Flora for short. Willow began to slowly walk backward, hoping to circle her father's desk and make a run for it. She wasn't exactly sure what she'd do after that, but it was the best plan Willow could think of at the moment. It wasn't every day she saw someone from a daydream come to life in front of her. No need to run, Willow. I'm not here to hurt you, Flora assured, her voice so calm anyone may have assumed she'd done this before. Willow flinched and dug her fingers into the flesh of her palms, trying to stop herself from panicking. It was also unexpected, and she had already suffered through enough spasms of terror that day. What are you doing here? Are you going to kill me? And how did you know what I was thinking? Can you read minds? Before Willow could frantically sign more questions, Flora held up her hand to stop her. Sure enough, the gesture made the girl freeze in her signing, hoping for answers and fearing what might happen if she didn't obey. But Flora remained as gentle as ever, carefully choosing her words so as not to upset the child before her. To answer your question, yes. In a way, I can read your mind, though it's more like I can just hear what you're thinking. The look of horror on Willow's face became apparent as her eyes widened. Only as much as you allow me to hear. You have to learn how to do that first, though. She mumbled that last part. Willow gripped the edge of her father's desk to keep her knees from buckling. Then she pulled herself up to sit on it, freeing her hands. Flora shook her head and smiled. No need to sign. Just think about what you want to say, and I'll hear it. With a wary look, Willow focused on her words, trying to form them in her brain. To her surprise, it sounded just like Flora's, except closer, though still seemingly coming from nowhere and everywhere. What about the reason you're here, she thought. Her voice was clear but rough around the edges, almost husky but not quite. Willow caught her breath at the sound of her own voice. It was as familiar as the palms on her hands, but of course it was. It was the voice that she heard when she read or thought about anything. It was the voice she heard when she imagined and dreamed. It was hers, possibly the best thing Willow had heard so far. Flora beamed at Willow, her face finally showing genuine emotion. My, you are a fast learner, aren't you? The girl blushed slightly at the sudden compliment, but knit her eyebrows, tilting her head to the side demandingly. Please answer the question. The woman sighed. All right. All right, I suppose you do deserve an explanation. After all, I did barge into your home, Flora admitted, her face now settled into a relaxed smile. 
less tense than before, but noticeably still on guard. With a deep breath, Flora leaned back on the window seat and prepared for the long explanation in front of her. I think it best to start with the fact that everything I'm about to tell you is 100% real. Nothing I'm about to tell you is a lie. I always believe it's important to be honest, except when in the most grave situations. It's true that I, Florica, happen to be a goddess, a goddess of life, stories, imagination, dimensions, and balance. It's also true that I knew your parents so well that we were like family to each other. And it's definitely true that you are a very special girl with some very special abilities. Are you following this so far? Willow nodded, eyes wide. Flora smiled grimly and continued. The universe we live in consists of many dimensions, whether they are alternate dimensions or just completely different altogether. Each one holds a story that will keep that dimension from becoming utterly useless and being destroyed. It's simply the way it goes. Everything must have a purpose, or else it serves no use to the universe. Flora then hesitated, but cleared her throat and continued, watching Willow carefully. I am the leader of a group called the Story Hunters. People are sentient creatures who know the true value of stories. We gain the ability to travel from dimension to dimension, gathering important events that might save that dimension from being obliterated. We make sure that most dimensions serve a purpose by taking their stories all around the universe and recontextualizing them into forms of fiction. Wait, so that means all the stories I've ever read are true, just in another dimension? Willow interjected. She practically radiated disbelief at everything that Flora was saying. It all seemed impossible, yet so insane it almost made sense. She'd never really fully understood the universe, so it was possible that it could be as complicated and strange as Flora described. The woman nodded, brushing a stray hair behind her ear. Correct. Humans have invented the terms reality and fantasy to describe what is and what isn't true. But when you think about it on a universal scale, everything is real and everything is fiction. We just need to open our minds a bit more to see it. That's where story hunters come in. We are the ones who keep this universe, and occasionally others, in perfect balance. It is because of us that many dimensions are stable. But every now and then, Flora shot a glance at the documents laying on the floor, there comes a threat that could cause the destruction of the entire multidimensional web. Her eyes flip back to Willow. And when this happens, we need a hero. Someone with the power to create anything they see fit. We call this hero the Imaginator. The name seemed to linger between the two, making the air thicker than it already was. Willow shivered, then felt something crack inside of her like an eggshell, but on a much larger scale. She gasped and clutched her hands to her chest, the feeling melting into something like being doused with warm water. Suddenly she was tugged forward, like a string was connected to her and Flora was being pulled. What was that? she exclaimed, pushing herself farther onto the desk in panic. Flora smiled widely, though her eyes were sad. We have begun to share a special connection. I am now your mentor, and she'll teach you how to harness your powers. Don't worry, I've done this once before, so I know what I'm doing. Who? I don't want to talk about her at the moment, Flora snapped, her lips pulling back to show her teeth. For a second, her eyes seemed to flash back to the white from before, but it ended as soon as it began, and the color change seemed like just a trick of the light. Willow flinched at the sudden aggression and hugged her knees to her chest. She didn't want to take any chances. Flora's eyes softened at the sight of the girl's nervous reaction, and her face grew flooded with shame. I'm incredibly sorry, my story huntress. That was the aftermath of a horrible curse put on me years ago, and strong emotions make it hard to control. At this, Flora's expression became guarded. But perhaps we'll speak about that some other day. For the time being, we must focus on getting you to the House of Stories. We've spent far too long in this dimension, and the certain threat we spoke of earlier must be aware of your existence by now. She jumped up off the window seat and began to gather the documents on the floor back into their briefcase. Flora gave the girl in front of her a comforting smile. I know this is all very quick, but I need you to know that you're not alone anymore. You have a future, and I will be there for you whenever you need me, okay? Willow nodded. Good. Now pack whatever you need. We have to leave as soon as possible. Willow gaped and hopped off her father's desk. But I still have questions. Does being the imaginator make me a story huntress too? 
Am I going to die in the process of fighting this evil thing threatening the universe? Were you born a goddess? How exactly did you know my parents? And what is the house of stories? What is even going on right now? She could have gone on, but the millions of questions jammed in her brain. Without looking up from gathering items strewn on the floor, Flora responded, Yes, hopefully no, not exactly. I'll explain when we get somewhere safe. The raven-haired girl glared and crossed her arms defiantly, no longer afraid. How do I know I can trust you? At this, Flora froze and turned to face the child with an expression of startling sincerity, bending down on one knee so she was eye-level with Willow. Listen, I would never do anything to hurt you. I've been watching you grow, Willow, and let me say it was quite a remarkable experience. She smiled and held out her hand. If you come with me, your life will be changed forever. This is your chance to go on the adventure you've been waiting for. You could be the hero of your own story. So tell me, Willow Vinedool, are you really about to turn that down? Willow studied the face in front of her, looking for any reason to convince herself that Flora was not to be trusted, that she should just turn away right now and hope that it was all just a dream and nothing more. But instead she found herself wondering, could this really be it? Am I really special? All her life, Willow had dreamed of the day she would discover that the world was larger than the ruins of her parents' library. She hoped that she would learn of a role to play, similar to the characters in her stories. Never had she thought even for a second that doubt would consume her when that day finally came. Even if it had been in most of her dreams, when Willow stood there in front of Flora, she couldn't picture herself as a hero, no matter how hard she tried. She opened her mouth to decline, to admit that Flora had the wrong person and should try and find another imaginator. After all, she wasn't like her parents. She was trapped, in a feud not yet forgotten, and in a world of silence. But when she looked into Flora's eyes, she felt a little spark of hope, that even if she wasn't a hero yet, maybe she could someday become one. Willow hesitated before placing her hand on Flora's. She looked up at the mysterious woman, making up her mind at last. Willow Vinedool decided she would not die in that library. No, she declared, her voice full of courage. I'm not going to become another untold story. Flora grinned, jumping to her feet. Good choice, she said, as she handed Willow a leather satchel. You're going to need this. Are you, or anyone you know, a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo, tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. Miss Mousy, are those onions on your ears? Oh, hey, Mr. Bear. Yeah, uh, these are onions on my ears. Oh, why do you have onions on your ears, Miss Mousy? Oh, well, I was, uh, my ears were starting to hurt. You know when you start to feel like you're getting an ear infection or something? Um, so, uh, I do the onion trick. Uh, it's, uh, really fantastic and, uh, it works every time. Oh, what's, what's the onion trick? Well, I learned it from Katya Swift at the Commonwealth Center for Holistic Herbalism. Um, you know, which is, uh, it's where I take my classes. It's a, it's a great place to study if you want to learn herbalism. 
Oh, and yeah, you know, you should probably remind uh, your listeners, Mr. Bear, that I'm just a two-dimensional, hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism. Um, so, you know, uh, everyone should also do their own research and, you know, maybe go study with um, schools like the Commonwealth Center. Um, but anyway, the onion trick uh, is really easy and fun. Um, you know, even when you're feeling kind of lousy with your ears hurting, you just uh, take an onion and you slice a couple thick slices, um, you know, uh, like the kind you'd find on a burger. Uh, and then you heat those up in a pan with a tiny bit of oil. You know, you're not you're not cooking them. You just want to warm them, warm them up. And then you wrap them in a in a thin uh, towel, and you put one over each ear and, and lay down with it like I'm doing. Um, and and even if it's only one ear hurting, you always do both ears. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, what what happens? Well, the the warmth uh, helps and can be soothing, and um, but it's also the sulfur compounds in there, and um, those you know can help fight the pathogens that are trying to take hold inside my ears here. So, um, you know, I just um, I do the onion trick, you know, maybe a few times a day if I'm starting to 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 feel like I, I might be getting an ear infection and uh, usually just nips it right in the bud. Wow, that's that's great to know. That's a, a handy trick, especially since, you know, most people have onions lying around. Oh, yeah, onions are so fantastic. I mean, I just love them. I love cooking with them, eating them raw. I mean, you can eat them raw like an apple. I don't usually do that, but um, I like to nibble when I'm chopping them up for my dinner. And um, uh, there's so many wonderful things you can do with onions. Uh, basically, just get them inside you. Um, and, you know, garlic, of course. Uh, and garlic can also um, be helpful for your ears. Oh, really? Uh, how? Well, you can chop up a couple cloves of garlic and cover them with a little olive oil and just warm that up. I usually just put them in a little dish and cover it and put it on top of a, a jar of hot tea that's steeping. And the, the warmth from the hot tea heats up the uh, garlic oil. And then you can just put a couple drops of the oil in your ear and maybe rub a little oil around your ear if you want. And uh, that also is uh, fantastic at, at fighting, uh, you know, whatever little ear bugs you got going on. Oh, that's uh, that's great to know. And garlic's another one that, you know, a lot of people, you know, have around already or it's easy to get. Yeah, definitely. And another favorite, um, and this one is, you know, you're not going to find at your grocery store, but ground ivy. Um, I just love ground ivy. Uh, yeah, ground ivy is that, um, I've seen that. It grows in, in the yard here. It's got those little purple flowers in the spring and the summer and on those kind of scalloped leaves. Yeah, um, you know, everyone should make sure you've properly identified your plant before harvesting. But yeah, um, ground ivy is an easy one to learn to identify, especially when it's in flower, which uh, it's, I don't think it really is right now. But um it um, grows in a lot of people's yards, so, you know, another reason not to put chemicals in your yard, because there's so many wonderful plants growing that you can, you know, eat and add to your, um, add to your medicine cabinet and your food pantry, um, so, you know, no chemicals on, no chemicals on the lawn, that's, uh, that's what I always say. Me too, uh, yeah. We just gotta get the get the word out to more people so they can get those stop putting those pesticides on their lawns. Yeah, but anyway, um, ground ivy you can gather fresh the the leaves and the flowers and um, tincture them. You know, just gather a bunch, put them in a jar, pour some vodka or brandy over it, shake it every day, and strain it out in a month, and you've got your ground ivy tincture and. You know, whenever I have ear stuff, ear congestion or sinus and head congestion, any of that kind of stuff, I 
I just take that that ground ivy tincture and um ah, I just I just love it. It gets everything moving in the head. Well, that's that's great to know, uh, Miss Mousy. Um some some other things about uh ground ivy, Mr. Bear. The Latin name is Glaucoma heteracea. Uh, but some of the common names um, people call it are gill over the ground or creeping Charlie. Um, and it's not actually an ivy, even though it's called ground ivy. Oh, uh, what is it? It's in the mint family. Um, and so that's one of the reasons um, it grows so abundantly. Mint, mint family plants just kind of, they grow like weeds. <laughs> oh, oh. Um, anyway... And um, ground ivy uh, was a very popular ingredient to make beer back in the day uh, before hops became popular. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, you could try to make beer at home uh, if you're a home brewer and uh, put some ground ivy in there. Um, and some some people work with it for tinnitus um, and it... it potentially can help a little bit uh, so that's something pe- people can experiment with and um, I was also reading how ground ivy has been associated with witchcraft and magic and used in spells uh, because so much of it would grow in in graveyards and ancient ruins so you know I thought this time of year um, seems appropriate to talk about witchcraft and magic so yeah, ground ivy, onion, garlic, all great stuff. Oh, uh, thanks, Miss Mousy. Um, I sure hope your ears feel better soon. Oh, thanks, Mr. Bear. I'm sure they will. Um, thanks for stopping by. Uh, yeah, I'll uh, let you get some rest now. Um, how long do you leave those onions on your ears? Oh, you know, just till they cool down. Um, I don't know, maybe ten minutes or so. Uh, it's really relaxing. Um, you should try it sometime. Oh, uh, yeah. Next time I have any ear pain, I will. Uh, all right, uh, Miss Mousy, uh, uh, you take care and I'll see you on the full moon. Okay, bye, Mr. Bear. And that's the show. Thanks so much for spending a little time with me in the Violet Hour, this new moon in October. I hope you all have wonderful things planted and growing inside your hearts and minds and around you uh, to keep you company this month and come to fruition in the full moon. And thank you again to Michaela Arenas for sharing her beautiful work with us. I hope you all are inspired to go out and build bridges of your own around you and find some connection and ways to be in community. And um, remember to go out and look at the sky and watch the moon grow this month. And uh, we'll, uh, I'll be watching along with you and uh, be back with you on the full moon. So uh, take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousy believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, you can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. 
This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.